Good morning, church. While the children are making their way downstairs, please turn in your Bible to Matthew chapter 19. Matthew 19. Our sermon today deals with gender and sexuality, so it is perhaps appropriate the Lord ordained for me to have this gravelly, masculine, deeper voice today to emphasize the point. Some of our guests wonder, man, is your pastor a chain smoker? No, I'm not. Just getting over something. Matthew chapter 19. There might not be a more contested topic in the modern era than human sexuality and gender. And this is because a constellation of cultural leaders going back to Darwin, Rousseau, Freud, Marx, and others have successfully discipled generation after generation in their claim that human freedom, happiness, and fulfillment comes from individuals following their own feelings, individuals following their own desires, and especially their own sexual desires. And this is, it's understood now, this is at the very center, the very core of what it means to be human. You can see this idea baked into our culture. It's mainstream now. Um, it is essentially the gospel according to Disney, if you watch modern Disney movies. Not the classics. The classics are classics for a reason. They're good. The moderns, some of them not so much. You know what the gospel according to Disney is. Follow your heart, disobey your dad, it'll all end in a wedding and everyone will be happy. That's pretty much the modern gospel according to Disney. Believe in yourself, follow your heart, break all the rules, and it'll all end up happily ever after anyway. That is the driving ideology of our day. Do what you want so long as you're following your heart, following your desires. You can, desires. You can love whomever you want to love. You can have sex with whomever you want to have sex. But just as soon as we Christians come up and say, no... You can't do that. No, that's wrong. No, that's harmful. It's shameful. This ideology, this ideology would claim, would state back that you are saying, we are saying to them, you can't be you. That's what they hear us saying. You can't be you. You can't really live. You can't really be free and happy. Now, of course, that's not what we're saying. That's not what we mean at all. That's not what actually we are articulating. But that's what they say that we are saying. And if you want to have a little social experiment to see if I'm true, if I'm accurate on this, uh, I would, you know, I'd suggest to you, take up your social media account and post the following statement. Just a few short words. Just point, just post this. You can't love whomever you want. Just put that on social media and see if you don't get canceled faster than Olaf melts on a hot summer day. It's going to happen. They claim we're saying they can't really live, that they can't really be happy and free. But of course, that's not what we're saying. That's just how they're redefining things. And one of the arguments you will often hear them make 
One of the statements claims they will try to say when we are trying to tell them what the Bible says, when we are trying to tell them what God has declared is right and proper for men and women, the argument you will almost immediately hear from someone in the crowd, and it's likely that someone grew up in the church, grew up going to church, the argument you're going to hear them say is what? Any guess? Jesus never talked about this. Jesus never talked about these issues. He never taught about sexuality and gender. He never talked about homosexuality. That's the modern common claim, that Jesus never spoke to these issues. But that is simply not true. That is simply not true. And here in our text today is one such place where Jesus gives us his authoritative word on human sexuality. This is one place where Jesus speaks clearly into the microphone. He doesn't sidestep the issue. He doesn't say, well, that's not what we're here to talk about. Let's talk about this over here. No, he steps right up to the mic and he speaks directly to human sexuality. And church, I want to call you, I want to say to you, the world needs you, needs us to step up to the mic. They need us to step up to the microphone and say, thus says the Lord. The creator and sovereign God, this is what he has said, that this is how he has made you. This is what he has made you to be. This is what he has made you to desire. This is God's way, and it is always right and good. So much of where we are in the culture today is because of the discipleship of cultural influencers who I named earlier, Mark, you know, Marx, Rousseau, Darwin, and the likes. So much of it is their discipleship succeeding, going, while the church is failing. The church has failed to declare with authority and then to stand behind it with loving discipline what God has said. But we will not fail today. We will not fail this morning. Coming into our passage, we want to boldly proclaim that God's word is our life, our liberty, and all our joy. So, turning to our passage, we are in Matthew chapter 19. We're going to read all of verses 1 through 12, this section of the passage, but our focus will largely be in the first four verses. The sermon will largely concern the first four verses. I invite you to follow along now. Matthew chapter 19, verses 1 through 12. This is what Holy Scripture says. Now, when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by, say, by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male? And female. And said, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. They said to him, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? He said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. 
And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. The disciple said to him, If such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. But he said to them, Not everyone can receive the saying, but only to those whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive or receive this, receive it. This is the word of God. It is eternally true. And may the one who is able to receive this, receive it today. This is one packed passage. It's incredible how much content is packed into these 12 verses. Just consider this. In these few verses, Jesus has something to say about sexuality and gender about marriage and implicitly about homosexuality, about divorce and staying married, and about singleness and celibacy. So there really is so much packed into this passage. I sat down this week and looked at it and said, there's no way I'm preaching this in one Sunday. Anyway, this Matthew series, it's not nearly going on long enough. I must prolong it at all costs. So we're going to break this up into four sermons. We are going to do Jesus and Gender today, which is also the name of this title. Jesus and Gender will be today. Then next week, the week before Thanksgiving, I'll give you a break. We're going to have Merrick preach on gratitude. Uh, That'll be nice. That'll get us all ready for Thanksgiving. And then I'll come back up after that, and I'll do a week on Jesus and marriage, Jesus and divorce, and then finally we'll hit Jesus and singleness. We are doing this, we are slowing down like this, because this is where Jesus' enemies tried to trap him. And this is still where Jesus' enemies are trying to trap us. Now, in our passage, the Pharisees set a trap for Jesus, verse 2. And they did so on the topic of divorce. They wanted to talk about how divorce is regulated, but Jesus, consummate argumenter or debater that he is, turns the topic, he escapes the trap by turning the topic to talk about marriage and how God has regulated it since the beginning. They want to talk about divorce. Jesus wants to talk about marriage, which, by the way, is how you do apologetics. You don't let your enemies control the agenda. They can set the agenda, but then doing apologetics, you talk about whatever you want. You talk about what needs to be said. They want to talk about divorce. Jesus decides to teach them about marriage. And so he takes them all the way back to the beginning. He goes all the way back to God's original design in the garden. Pre-fall, pre-sin, this is how God designed marriage. So they ask Jesus, verse 3, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? This was a reference to Moses' teaching on divorce in Deuteronomy, something we'll come back to in a few weeks. Jesus answers by taking them all the way back to Genesis and the garden, saying in verse verse 4, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? Now stop there. That's as far as we're going today. Think about what Jesus is doing. Why did he state that? Why did he bring up, from the beginning, God made them male and female? It's not strictly 
marriage in and of itself. So why did Jesus go there? He wants to talk about marriage, but to do that, Jesus decides to establish the reality that marriage is based on. They want to talk about divorce. Jesus wants to talk about marriage. And so to talk about, to talk about marriage, Jesus decides he has to go all the way back to the truth that marriage is built upon. Marriage is constructed on a truth. Like a house is constructed on a solid foundation. Like a house is constructed on a foundation, marriage is constructed on the foundational truth of gender distinctions. Gender differences. On the foundation that God made us male and female. Verse 4 plainly states that he did, and that is a reference to Genesis 1.27. Where before the fall, before sin came into the world, we read the following. Genesis 1.27, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created him. This is how God made us. And the same foundational truth is repeated again for us in Genesis 5.2. There we read, male and female, he created them, and he blessed them and named them man when they were created. The significance of this being repeated in Genesis 5-2, and in numerous places in Scripture, like Jesus's verse, or Jesus says here in verse 4, the significance of this is that now it is stated on this side of the fall, on this side of the entrance of sin coming into the world. So sin came into the world, and with that came a lot of change. A lot of things changed when sin came in and corrupted it. But one thing that didn't change is that God made us male and female. That is a truth that did not change. The divine design holds. The divine design stands firm. We are male or female. And this divine design, this divine distinction is the foundation marriage is built on, regardless of what the Supreme Court or the Court of Public Opinion tries to tell us. The modern world, as I noted at the beginning of my message, the modern world has embraced the lie that human freedom and happiness is found in what Christian scholar Great guy, great, I mean, I don't know him personally, but great author. I like his stuff. Carl Truman, what he has called expressive individualism. So you can bring this up at Thanksgiving around the table. Uh, have you all talked about expressive individualism? Expressive, you can throw it out at a party game. Expressive individualism. The idea here is that you and I, this is what the culture believes, this is the great lie the culture believes, that you and I are most free, most happy, most human, most happy, most free, most human, when we are least inhibited from acting on our deepest desires. We are most free, most happy, most human, when we are least inhibited from acting on our deepest desires. That's when you and I are the most human, when we are free to do what we want, when we're free to follow our heart. As I said, this all came from the likes of Darwin, Rousseau, and Marx, they were the guys building this intellectually and influencing the intellectual influencers. And it, it made its way down. It's trickled its way down into culture so that now Disney champions it, as I said earlier, which is to say now it is mainstream. It all came from the likes of Darwin, Rousseau, and Marx. But Freud was the one. Uh, Freud, is, Freud is weird. And Freud is the one who came along and said, let me take all that and sexualize it. Uh, let, so it's not just any old desire. It's your sexual desire. 
Uh, it's, it's what makes you most human, what makes you most alive, what makes you most free when you are free to act on whatever sexual desire you want. That, Freud claim, is the very essence of being human. This was the lie he, with friends, peddled, and that the modern world has bought hook, line, and sinker, which is why the modern world has rejected nearly every moral and legal constraint on sexuality. They've rejected all of it because, here's the logic, if you want to understand the logic underpinning it, if you want to argue it, you need to understand the logic, right? And so here's the logic. If an individual, if an individual's fundamental humanity is expressed in their sexual desires and gratifications, if it's most, if I'm most human, when I'm freest to express my desires, especially my sexual desires, then to restrain or restrict that is to deny their humanity. Not just their rights, their humanity. It's to restrain and restrict their identity. It's what we talk about with identity politics. They've made it a part of their identity And so to deny or restrict any of this is to, in effect, cancel them. It's to deny their humanity. It's to deny their identity. That's the claim. You're restricting and restraining their very humanity. This was the claim. For example, you think, Jace, where are you getting this? Well, I'll tell you where I'm getting this. You can get this in a lot of places. But the 2015, how do you say the word? Oberfeld, thank you, decision by the Supreme Court, which legalized so-called same-sex marriage. In that decision, the justices quoted an earlier Massachusetts state Supreme Court ruling. So I'm going to give you a quote. It's the United States Supreme Court's ruling where they're quoting and endorsing the reasoning of a Massachusetts state Supreme Court ruling. Here's what they wrote. Choices about marriage shape an individual's destiny. As the Supreme Judicial Court of Massachusetts has explained, because, quote, it fills yearnings for security, safe haven, and connection that express our common humanity. Civil marriage is an esteemed institution. Now these words here follow. And the decision whether and whom to marry is among life's momentous acts of self-definition. Self-definition. So notice what they're doing in this. Notice what they're doing. On the one hand, they are esteeming the institution of marriage. It's so high and lofty, it's so high and lofty that it must not be denied to any two individuals who want to pursue it. But then notice that last line, the decision whether and whom to marry is among life's momentous acts of self-definition. That's the notion, self-definition. The choice who to marry and who to be with sexually is among life's momentous acts of self-definition. Your determination to define yourself as you want to define yourself. So to restrain and restrict marriage to one man and one woman, not only restricts and restrains your chosen, you know, who you get to marry, but it, it restricts your sexuality, your chosen sexuality, your defined sexuality, but it also restricts and restrains your chosen identity. Your self-definition. It restrains and restricts you from defining yourself as you want, by your desires, by following your heart. This is the modern lie. 
that you are most free, most happy, and most human when there are no limits on your self-expression and consequently your self-definition. That's the great lie of our day. And against that deception, against that lie, Jesus teaches that fundamentally God is authoritative over his creation, not you. That foundationally, okay, follow this. We said Jesus wants to talk about marriage, right? And underneath marriage, he's laying a foundation that marriage is built on of gender distinctions, right? But I want you to see, to stretch my analogy maybe a little far, you construction guys can correct me later. Underneath this foundation of gender distinctions is another foundation, a sub foundation, a subgrade even lower. And that is the foundation of authority. Who is in control? This is the fundamental and foundational thing. Who is in charge? Who gets to make the laws? Who gets to define and determine? And Jesus teaches here, fundamentally, that God is the authority. He is the one in charge. He and his word reigns supreme over humanity and over human sexuality. This is not something we get to define. This is not something we get to determine or decide. God defines it. God determines it. God decides it. And he made, Jesus said, he made us male and female. Now, before we move on to all this, before we move on from all this, There's one more thing that's key that I make sure you understand. There's one more thing key that we need to understand, and it's this. It is not freedom to rebel against your maker. It is not freedom to rebel against the one who made you. It's not freedom to define and determine apart from the one who defines and determines all things. It's not freedom, and it doesn't lead to happiness. Get this through illustration. If God gave you wings, if God gave you wings to fly, then it is freedom to fly. If God gave you wings to fly, then it's freedom. Jump off that branch and soar, baby, soar. But if God did not give you wings, then you can climb to the top of the Empire State Building and you can say to yourself all you want I believe I can fly. I I desire to fly. I want to fly. I define myself as a bird. I want to fly. And then throwing yourself off the side of the building, you might experience for a moment the illusion of freedom as you fall. And maybe even the illusion of happiness. There's some fun in this. But it would all be dispelled in a squashing moment when you hit the ground. When you splat onto the pavement. Then it would not be free, and then it would not be fun. You thought you were free, but it wasn't freedom. Listen, the laws of nature don't care what you believe about yourself. Gravity doesn't care if you think you are a bird or not. Laws work the way that they work. Reality is established as God has defined it. If you want another illustration, let me give you another one. It's not freedom for a fish to jump out of a fishbowl believing that it can breathe out of water. 
It's not freedom for it to do that. Sorry, Nemo. Sorry, Disney. You can't jump out of the water believing that you can... Wait, where's Nemo? Somebody find Nemo. Oh, he's jumped out because he believes that he can breathe out of the water. Well, no. That won't work. Why? Because God gave him gills to breathe in water. And that, that, that is where true freedom lies. It's in what God has made you to be. It is in what God has made you for. True freedom is found in being all that God made you to be and doing all that God made you to do, not defying what God has made you to be or to do. Therefore, it is not freedom for a man to reject his masculinity. It is not freedom for him to reject his maleness. It is not freedom for him to reject the gift of a woman in marriage. And likewise, it is not freedom for a woman to reject her femininity. It is not freedom for her to reject her femaleness or the gift of a man in marriage. It is not freedom to reject what God has made us to be and what God has made us to do. So, Jesus' question in our passage really is pertinent to us and to our day when he says, Have you not read? Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning, made them male and female. From this, I want to springboard into two points. Two points with our remaining time. Having established the foundation of marriage is actually gender distinctions, that we are male and female, and that under that is the issue of authority, who gets to define and determine, God does, And having also addressed the fact that, contrary to popular opinion today, true freedom is not found in defying God, but is found in being and doing what God has made us to be and do. Having established all that, and I want to springboard from Jesus' teaching in verse 4, into two key distinctions in gender. Two key gender distinctions that we need to understand. The first is, the distinction between male and female is bodily. The distinction between male and female is bodily. And many of you would say, really, Jace? You have to, you have to tell us that? <laughs> like, can we just go on to point number two then? Like, got it. Um, well, sadly, no, I, I can't. I actually have to establish this for you in God's word. And thankfully, it's right here. As I've already said, Jesus teaches in verse four, or Jesus' teaching in verse four is a reference back to Genesis 1, 27. It's a hyperlink back to the beginning. And if we double click it, We read, let me quote it for you again. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Here we see both men and women are created in the image of God. They are both same in this regard. They are the same in value and in dignity. In value and in dignity. And yet for all that sameness, they are still different. For all that, they're still different. They are male and female. And something significant about this distinction is then carried into the next verse, verse 28, which reads, and, so we're picking right up, right? And, connects to verse 27, and God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it. Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. This has been called the creation mandate. Half this mandate is to go and subdue the earth. 
That's half the mandate. The other half is is procreation. It's to fill it. And as I never tire in pointing out, in case you haven't heard me say it before, I think it's a wonderful thing about our God that the first command he gives us is to go and have sex. This is a blessing from the Lord. It should not make us blush. We should not be shy about this. We should be a church who can state this plainly for a culture who wants to know about sex, who's very confused about sex. Our God blessed us with the gift of sex, and his first command was a good command. Go and have enough of it to fill the world. Thank you, Lord. This has been called the creation mandate. Half of it has to do with procreation. The man and the woman are to be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. This implies that male and female, men and women, are distinguished by their reproductive systems. Only men produce sperm. Only women produce eggs. The implication of this is if a person's body, their reproductive system, you understand what I'm saying, if their body says male, it can produce sperm. If their body says male, but their brain says female, then according to God, their brain is wrong, not their body. According to God, their brain is wrong, not their body. Diving even deeper still, getting to the molecular level, every cell in a male body is stamped XY, and every cell in a female body is stamped XX. Every person is born biologically either male or female. You want to hear something controversial? That's an objective fact. It's a truth. Every person is born biologically male or female. Having said that, I will say it is true. There's a very small number of people who are born with a genetic disorder that affects their sexual development, the development of their sexual organs. This is often called intersex. This is a real disorder. It's a rare disorder. It affects about 0.02% of the population. So it's a real disorder, but it's a rare disorder. And it is the thing I believe Jesus is acknowledging in our passage. When in verse 12 he says, there are eunuchs who have been so from birth. This does happen. It is an effect of the fall. It affects a very small number of people. But understand this. Even in those cases, the sex of that person can still be genetically determined. Their cells are still XX or XY. So the disorder is real, but we should see it more like we see every other bodily disorder that results from this fall. It is like being born blind or being born with a club foot. It is a disorder. We're sad for it. They need ministry and care. They need comfort. But it is a is a disorder that does not affect their biological level. They are still male or female. And that is the larger point here. That sex is a bodily and biological category. You are either male or female. So gender is not fluid. Um, gender is not fluid. It's binary. Two, there's male or female. That's it. You are either male or female. And please understand this, especially you young people. It is impossible to change your sex. 
it is impossible to, you can hear about sex reassignment surgeries and all these different things, like hormone treatments, all this stuff. All that does is change your appearance. All that does is change your appearance. It cannot, it does not, it will not change your sex. They cannot do that. Your birth sex cannot be changed. You are either a man or a woman. The truth of this, the truth of this has massive implications for how we minister to people dealing with gender-confusing feelings. Gender-confusing feelings, which is a real thing. I'm not talking about the disorder I'm talking about earlier. I'm talking about gender-confused desires, gender-confused feelings. It's a real thing, and all the more so in our day, when everybody tells them, you should, yeah, you can desire whatever you want. Yeah, you should experiment however you want. We should expect the rise of confusion to only go up given the lies that are peddled in our day and given the proliferation of pornography into TV shows, much less actual pornography out in the world today. There is so much confusion, and we must speak the truth in love. We, not just me from the pulpit, we, as in all of us, must speak the truth in love. That we are genuinely sorry for their confusion. We are genuinely grieved for them and with them for their confusion. Nevertheless, we must speak the truth in love. We must insist, it is the loving thing for us to insist, that their body is not lying to them. Their brains may be, the culture could be, their desires may be confused, but their body is not lying to them. Based on the authority of God's word, we can tell them their body is not lying to them. Gender is not something that's self-determined or assigned at birth. It is defined by God and it is revealed in our male or female bodies. And the real ministry for these people, the real ministry is to help them to live by faith in God's word over and against their feelings. To live by faith not by feelings. The real ministry is to encourage them to trust God over themselves, to live as they were made, and to prefer the pronoun God gives them over the pronoun they prefer themselves. Real quick, before I... I do want to talk about pronouns here again in just a second. I'll pick that back up. But I do want to just plug here again the uh, curriculum that Merrick highlighted earlier, Holy Sexuality by Dr. Yuan. Christopher Yuan, it is wonderful. I love his book by the same total title, Holy Sexuality. But for all of you who have teens, maybe even preteens, um, I highly recommend it. It's a great video series. I really encourage people to go through it uh, and to make the time as a part of family discipleship or kind of a Sunday school class at home if you want to do it. However you want, break it into your homeschooling education, however you can work it in. I think it's critical that we're engaging our kids on these issues. Just to double-click also on pronouns for a minute here, let me just say this. Uh, Pronouns are not insignificant. Pronouns are not insignificant. Uh, Hence all the pressure to use pronouns that people prefer. So pronouns are not insignificant. If you can threaten to get, if you can lose your job over a pronoun, pronouns are not insignificant. They seem as, they're just a few words, a few letters, but but they're not insignificant. Why, Why are they not insignificant? Well, because... People know, and we should know, pronouns communicate truth. Pronouns communicate reality. 
And this is why it's never loving to use a pronoun that doesn't correspond with someone's, someone's bodily sex. Love, 1 Corinthians 13 tells us, love rejoices in the truth. So love prefers the true pronoun, not the preferred pronoun. It rejoices in the God-given pronoun, even if they have a hard time receiving that as love. This brings us to point number two this morning. Point number two today, the distinction between male and female is social. It's bodily, but it's also social, meaning it has a social dynamic, a, a social expression. It's not just in your body. It's meant to get flesh out in this world. It's to be incarnated and displayed. Genesis 1 teaches us that sex is a bodily reality. It's a biological reality. But Genesis 2, which Jesus also quotes in our passage in verse 5, Genesis 2 teaches us that gender is a social reality as well. It finds social expression. The spirit of our age tells us that gender is a social construct, that it's just a set of customs and behaviors that one learns from society, things like women cook dinner and men take out the trash. It's just something we pick up from society it has no essential connection to our bodies or to biology, and therefore it doesn't matter. Therefore, gender doesn't matter. It's just a social construct, and we can, re- we can reconstruct it if we want. But that is not what Scripture teaches. Genesis 2 teaches us that God made man first and charged him to keep and work the garden. He was to protect and develop it. That was the good work he was supposed to do. But then God declared that it was not good for man to be alone. God looked at man, gave him this job, said, I made you for this job, here's your job, go and do it, but oh, wait a minute, it's not good for you to be alone. To which all the men in the world said, Amen. Some of you had to get your wife to elbow you, that was kind of sad. And that helps make the point right now where all the women said to God, no kidding, these guys need help, um, as demonstrated in our service today. So God said, it's not good for a man to be alone. He needs a helper suitable for him, Uh, literally corresponding to him or one that fits him. Um, And one would immediately think about the bodily fit, uh, but we already talked about in the last point, so I won't go into that one. But notice here, Notice the suitability of this when considered in the context in which God declares it. He makes man and says, you have a job to do. Go and keep, let's protect, keep and work the garden. Then he looks at man as man's supposed to be protecting and providing out there working in the world, doing the hard things. And he says, it's not good for you to be alone. You need a helper, one who will nurture the family and manage the home while you're out working. And so God made Eve out of Adam. The point in this is God designated a social role for Eve within marriage to Adam, one that corresponds to her biological sex. And God designated a social role for Adam within his marriage to Eve, one that corresponds to his biological sex. Men, male, are called to lead, protect, and provide. While women are called, made, to help, nurture, and keep home. Help, nurture, and make home. 
This was the original design, and the rest of Scripture reveals that these social roles are not merely descriptive of the first man and woman, but are normative for all men and women. Now, of course, this doesn't mean that women shouldn't lead anything at all. And it doesn't mean that men should not help at all. That's not the implication. But it does mean God's created order does emphasize a certain social order where men lead, provide, and protect. Men go to war. Men check out the noise in the middle of the night. Men hold a steady job. Men take out the trash. Men open doors for others. While women are helpers who make lives and make homes. Who make lives and make homes. Now, what I just said was about the hundredth thing I said in the sermon that was really controversial. Actually, there's not a lot of controversy over this in our day, sadly. Um, but if I said it, there would be quite a storm on social media. Uh, uh, the fact that I just, you know, yeah, here's another one you can test on social media. Go post. Women are called to be helpers who make lives and make homes. Um, and then step away from your computer because it will catch on fire. <laughs> there are days, are those who look down on this distinction in our day, they look down on it. There's a lot who look down on this distinction, believing that it in some way degrades women. But consider this. Consider this. The first home everyone ever lived in was the home in their mother. It was their mother's womb. A woman simply is a homemaker. She is this. Literally, she has a home inside of her. And this physical reality is a sign to her and to the world of her social responsibility. A woman's calling is to make people by making a home. See this again. You can study this out more in Titus 2, verses 4 and 5. Titus 2, 4 and 5. Women make people by making a home for them. And it's here that we really need to expand our understanding of these things. We need to, we need to make sure. First, don't hear what I'm not saying. Uh, in this, I'm not saying that a woman can't work outside the home. Uh, women can work outside the home. Uh, Proverbs 31 women seem to be quite a busy and industrious woman. So women can work outside the home. But what I am saying here is that a home is a woman's priority. Making the home in which her family is nourished and has brought life and brings life to other people is her priority. It is her mission. And I think at this point we also need to expand our understanding of motherhood. We also need to expand our understanding of motherhood. It certainly includes conception and child rearing, but it doesn't stop there. Deborah we're told, was a mother of Israel. Judges 5, verse 7. And in Romans 16, 13, we read an interesting passage. Paul writes, the mother of Rufus, a mother to me. Romans 16, 13. The mother of Rufus, a mother to me. So apparently a woman who ministered to Paul so deeply, who cared for him so well, who gave him so much Life, who nursed him in some way or another, that he adopted him, her, as his own mother. 
a missionary who has a mom back home. And then again, in Galatians 4, 26, we're told that the church is the mother of us all. The church is the mother of us all. People are being made. Here's the thing to understand about motherhood. People are being made all the day long. That's what's happening right now. I am mothering you. The church is mothering you. You are being made. This is, in a sense, mothering. This is a part of mothering. It's also fathering. So I'm speaking authoritatively and sternly in times. But it is mothering as well. Paul talks about that in Thessalonians. He was both a mother and a father. This is mother. And mothering makes people. Mothering makes people. All day long through rest and food and care and friendship and clothing and more food and games and discipline and education. And then more food. And we really must not underestimate the potency of all this. People are made in the image of God and mothers make people. People are made in the image of God and people live forever. And this is why. I wish I had my voice right now. (laughs) This is why. How do you preach these things without a voice? Goodness. This is why. Paul says women are the glory of men. 1 Corinthians eleven seven. Paul says that men are the glory of God and women are the glory of men, which is to say women are the glory of glory. Women are the glory of glory. They are the crown of the crown, the prize jewel in it. Why? Because women make the human race shine. They make it glow. They make it glorious. They take all the work of us rough and tumbled men and they say, let me dress it up and make it good. Let life be brought out of this. And this is glorious in God's eyes. This is glorious in God's eyes. And women, I want to ask you, is this glorious in your eyes? Women, is this glorious in your eyes? Is motherhood your mission? Either narrowly defined by making people, by making a home, or even more broadly defined by cultivating life, by caring for others. Is motherhood your mission? And I say this, uh, you know, no, a controversial thing, 101. Um, or three or five, I don't know, I've lost track. I said, for our church particularly, let me say something pastorally and specific to you. And parents of young people, I'm saying this to you as well so that you can help train them up. What we see in our culture are people getting married later and later in life, right? Marriage is like later, what's the average age? It's like 30 or something now, right? So later in life. By God's grace, not happening in our church. Don't want that to happen in our church. I'm not recommending that to happen in our church. But what I'm seeing pastorally happen over the 11, almost 12 years I've been here is people getting young people getting married and putting off having kids. Putting off having kids. Some of you, some of you are putting off having kids. And there are all kinds of reasons for that. And some of them may be good and godly. I just want to make sure you're not putting it off because the woman doesn't see motherhood as her mission. Motherhood is your mission. It is a good and glorious thing. 
So just make sure you're not putting it off because you're putting that off. Men, you don't get off the hook here. I have something to say to you as well. Scripture says, men, that the glory of a young man is his strength. The glory of a young man is his strength. Proverbs 20, verse 29. And there are many other passages that correlate men, not just young men, but men and strength. Some of them would be 1 Corinthians 16, verse 3. Or 1 Peter 3, verse 7. 1 Corinthians 16, verse 3. 1 Peter 3, verse 7. And 1 John 2, 14. What this means is, what makes a man shine... What makes a man shine with glory is using the physical, mental, emotional, and spiritual strength that God has given him to lead, provide, and protect. We use our strength for these things. The glory of men is their strength, which makes softness our shame. Which makes softness our shame. Softness in conviction. Softness in courage. Softness in self-control. Softness in work ethic. Softness is a man's shame. And this softness is not unrelated to homosexuality. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 9. And so we must be a church of men that practice strength and courage. And we must be men who teach and train our boys to be strong and courageous. Now, a word of warning for you men. A word of warning for you men, and especially you young men. You teenagers, college students, and young 20-somethings. I have you especially in mind. In Proverbs, when speaking of the adulterous woman... When speaking of the seductive woman who calls you after her, who leads you astray. Proverbs 7 verse 26 says, Many a victim has she laid low, and all her slain, all who she has killed, are mighty. Are a mighty throng. In other words, she has killed many a strong man. The seductive woman has killed many a strong man. That's Proverbs 7.26. So my word and warning to you men is, do not give your strength to a woman like that. Do not give your strength to a woman like that. Do not give your strength to sexual sin. God has made you with a strong desire for sex. And that is a good and godly thing. That is a part of your glory. It is not shameful to have a strong sexual desire. It is not shameful to feel strong sexual desire. This is not a bad thing at all. It is a gift God has made for you to enjoy in the context of marriage. But sexual sin, pornography, steals your strength. It saps your strength. So my word to you is act like men. Be strong. Be courageous. Fight with all your might. That's what this time of your life is for. This is the fight of your life. Get accountability. Get help. And also, get married. Write that down, young men. Pastor said, get married. If you need help, 
free of charge, I happily arrange marriages. It's just a ministry I provide to young men and women. Uh, I am all for it and supportive of it. And parents, uh, I don't, oh, I have to move on. Another word for you parents, another day. Help your kids get married. That's my word to you. Okay, in conclusion, because I have a flight to catch to Florida. Um, got America in the back of my head saying, we got to go, we got to go, we got to go, and it's okay, I got to go, but first I got to preach the gospel, so let me do that, because that is more important. God has made us male and female. He has made us different, and he has made us different that we might pair so well together, like chips and salsa, like peanut butter and jelly, or like I would prefer, like steak and wine. God has made us male and female, therefore... A man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is the only way people, two people become one flesh. And this is something that God does, and therefore man should not try to render it, reject it, or redefine it. Marriage is God-made. Gender is God-made. But let us also remember this, that the same God who makes male and female and makes them one flesh, has come himself for our race of fallen sexual sinners. The same God who at creation made us male and female has come into this world in order to make a new creation. He has bound himself to us by an unbreakable covenant in the blood of his son in order to take away all our sin and shame and to make us human again, in order to make us male and female again, in order to make our marriages beautiful again in order to renew within us a right sexuality again so my final word to you is repent of your sins repent of your sins look listen look around there is not a single person in this room that's not a sexual sinner there's not a single person in this room that is not a sexual sinner And so the word is repent of your sins and look to Jesus. Look at his cross and see yourself there. See yourself in all your sin on Christ, on the cross, flayed and beaten and naked and dead. Don't look at yourself. Don't leave this room today looking at yourself. Leave looking at Christ and his cross. What you see there is you and your sin. You did have those thoughts. You did look at those things. You did do those deeds. You did them and they were awful. But they were also crucified on his cross. And then what happened? What happened next? They were taken down with Jesus. They were put in that tomb. They were laid there for three days. And then he rose back up without that sin. He rose back up and he rose you back up. You are risen in Jesus' name. And all your sins are gone. All that sexual sin is gone. All that condemnation is gone. All your resistance to gender realities and gender roles, all that filth and unconf- or all that confusion is all gone. The shame is all gone. And all that remains is a holy and pure and glorious humanity, male and female, shining as the radiant image of our God. 
This is the gloriously good news for sexual sinners like you and me. And this is the gloriously good news that we get to go and preach to our sexually broken neighbors and this sexually broken nation. That through Christ, God is in the business of saving sinners and remaking humanity. Male and female, he made us. And male and female, he remakes us. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we praise and thank you for Jesus. Thank you that he died so that all our sin might die. Thank you that he died so that all our sin could be crucified with him. And Father, we confess that we needed to be crucified. Because we are covered in so much filth. We are covered in so much sin. We thank you that Jesus was buried so that our sin might be buried and that Jesus was raised so that we might be raised with him to new life. Father, I pray that you would impress the truth of your word on our hearts today. I pray that your word would renew our minds. I pray that your word and your spirit would change our lives. Lord, change our marriages, change our parenting, change our immorality into purity. And Lord, send us out from here today as angels of change in this world. Spread us like leaven through bread, Lord, but make it good and make it good bread. We pray all this in the name of your son, Jesus, our Lord. Amen. Amen. Let me invite you to stand now. We come now to the table of communion, to the table of fellowship with our God. He has set this table to remind you of the fellowship that you have with him through his son. So if you are a Christian, whether you call this church your home or not, you are welcome to join us at the table. If you're not a Christian, or if you've not publicly confessed your faith through baptism, we'd ask you to refrain from participating. Let the elements pass you by. Instead, consider the truth that has been preached to you today. That all of us here, listen, we're not all taking this bread and this cup because we've got it all pulled together. The reason why anyone around you is taking this bread and cup today is because they are a sexual sinner and they admit it. They're taking the cup because they admit they are a sexual sinner in need of a Savior. And they have claimed Christ as their one and only, the true Savior. We pray that will be your confession of faith as well. And that you will join us in that confession and at this table. As we sing this next song, I encourage you to not just sing the words, but consider that you come as a broken sinner and Jesus has come to build you back up. That you have come in need and he has come with supply. That you have come dirty, but he has come to cleanse you. So let us come to Jesus. Let's sing and then I'll come and lead us in taking the elements.